Today, on the Blokes in Your Ear podcast, we have paleontologist and museum curator Matthew McCurry. Matthew works at the Australian Museum as a curator. He also works in the field of paleontology, mainly working with vertebrates and marine mammals in his research. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to Matthew and he taught us a lot about evolution and the way things have been and are going to be in the future. Let's give it up for Matthew McCurry. It's time for the Blokes in Your Ear podcast. Well, welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks for coming on. Um, just for the people at home, um, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. So, um, yeah, my name's Matthew McCurry. I'm a, a curator at the Australian Museum and also a lecturer at the University of New South Wales. Um, I'm a paleontologist, um, in particular uh, a vertebrate paleontologist. So I'm interested in kind of the evolution of life in um, discovering uh, new fossil animals and describing them as well. And yeah, so I, I guess that's my job. Yeah. So obviously, very interesting field to be in. How did you get into that sort of field? Did it start when you were younger? Did you love dinosaurs as a kid? Or did you build into it as you learnt more about it as you grew up? Yeah, I, I guess I've always been interested in the natural world. I was one of those kids that was always outside kind of looking for animals. Um, I grew up at Lake Macquarie with lots of, you know, interesting nature around me. So so it's something I've been interested in for a very long time. Um, but I guess uh, my interest particularly in fossils came a little bit later. So while I was at university, I um, really interested in um, kind of the, the deep time perspectives on life. So not just about living animals, but about... Um, fossils and about what they can tell us about how things evolved. Yeah. Um, I guess as a kid also, I, I came from that generation where um, Jurassic Park kind of hit while I was at primary school and everyone was really into it. And um, so, yeah, it, it's something that um, I think I've been interested in for a long time. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know a lot of people start with that nature side of thing and then grow into the more paleo side as they understand um, because it sort of helps you understand the animals you're seeing around you as well at the same time, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. It gives a completely different perspective. So um, I guess understanding where things have come from, how they've changed over time, um, kind of the the events that have played out in Earth's history just gives you a completely different um, perspective on the animals that are around. But um, fossils are obviously a little bit harder to come by, so they're not something you normally encounter in a day-to-day um, activities, but but you see these living animals all around you. But um, yeah, because the fossils are a bit harder to come by, I guess it takes a little bit longer for people to, to get really interested in them. Yeah, definitely. So you said you're working at the Australian Museum. What sort of work do you go into on a day-to-day basis when you're there? So my work's pretty varied. So um, I look after the fossil collection at the Australian Museum. Yeah. So we have a collection of around 165,000 fossils that are kind of um, in a in a basement um, storage facility. So you only get to see kind of a very very small percentage of the the total number of fossils that we have um, at the museum mm. on kind of public displays. But we have this huge scientific collection that's there. So I manage that collection, kind of look after it, make sure everything's safe and stored correctly and organised properly. Um, but I also study the fossils in that collection. So um, there's tons of really exciting, interesting things that we can find out using those fossils. Um, 
kind of the most, um, I, I guess, uh, one of the most exciting aspects of that is describing new things. So, um, so yeah, in the fossil collection, there's hundreds, thousands of fossils that are sitting there that are probably new species, but it takes someone to actually go through and compare them to other fossils and find out how they're different to uh, to figure out if they're something new and then to describe military. Mm. Well, I've looked into it uh, quite a bit and I, from my understanding, it takes a very long time to process even one fossil. Is it just you working on these or is there a group of people trying to get as much information out as we can? So there's only two of us in the paleontology department at the moment. So um, I work with an invertebrate paleontologist called um, Patrick Smith. Um, and I guess we share the work. So we go out and do field work together, kind of excavating fossil sites, but then also um, preparing the fossils when we bring them back to the museum. Um, and yeah, de describing kind of the things that we're most interested in. Mm. Well, obviously, you said you go out into the field to find the fossils. What work goes into finding these locations and then retrieving the specimens from the ground? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, I guess most fossils that we find are from known fossil sites. Um, so once you know that an area has fossils within the rocks, it's a site that we'd normally go back to again and again, sometimes for hundreds of years to, to find new things. Um, rocks are constantly eroding away. And so fossils are coming to the surface and kind of being able to become discovered, they're, they're becoming visible. And so, yeah, we revisit a lot of sites. Um, sometimes we do find completely new sites as well though, but that process takes a long time. So um, to find a completely new fossil site, you've got to find the right age rocks, the right types of rocks. Um, and then you've got to spend a lot of time on the ground actually searching, um, breaking apart rocks with a geological hammer and, and trying to discover where, where fossils might be in that environment. Mm. And I'm, I'm assuming a lot of these fossils are quite uh, fragile and if you don't find them in the right place, you could damage them in the long run. Yeah, true. So um, because things are constantly eroding, you know, rain's washing down across slopes and um, eroding away the rock, it'll, it'll also damage the fossils in time. So it's important that kind of we do go and visit these sites on a regular basis and figure out if there's something there that might be being damaged by, by weather events. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And then once we've collected them, I mean, they're still fragile. So they're, they're things that we've got to really take good care of. We keep the environmental conditions in the museum really stable. Um, and we treat them with lots of, um, lots of things to, to make sure that they're strong and that they don't break apart over time. Mm. So you mentioned your key work is with vertebrates. When you're looking at these fossils, from your point of view, what are you trying to find about them? Is it a morphological thing, an evolutionary thing, or lots of different things all at once? Yeah, I guess work um, can focus on a variety of different things. So... Um, sometimes we're inter interested in figuring out if something's new, a different species, something different, but other times we're interested in kind of the, the process of evolution or in events in the Earth's history. Um, so there's lots of different analyses that we can run and try and figure out. So for instance, um, today I'm running some analyses on brain size evolution. So I'm looking at a, a data set of, um, of whale brain size. So we've gone through and we've CT scanned heaps of, um, of fossil whales and um, from the CT scans figured out how big their brains are. 
And now I'm doing some kind of computational analyses to figure out exactly when whales evolved large brains. Mm, very interesting. So I, so I guess that tells us a lot, not just about which species exist, existed, about the process of evolution and kind of what drives animals to evolve large brains. Mm. Um, in this research, is there any sort of taxa or genus of animal that you look to more in your research personally, or is it just a general overview of um, taking in the specimens you have and then processing them in a set order or anything? So I've, I've mainly focused on mammals and reptiles in my career, but pretty broadly within those groups. Um, I guess I go where there's interesting questions to answer. Uh, right now, I'm really enjoying working on fossil whales because I think there's a lot of really exciting questions there. You know, they're, they're some of the biggest animals that have ever lived. They're, um, they've evolved these really weird feeding styles. So you think about baleen whales that are in the oceans today. They um, swim around and engulf huge swarms of krill. And I'm interested in kind of how animals evolve to be like that. Um, and yeah, so there's tons of interesting questions there with whales right from their ancestry um, with animals on land. So whales, um, I guess, evolved from terrestrial ancestors. So that's a really interesting mm. point in their evolution. But then more recently, they also got quite large and evolved these really unique feeding styles. So I'm interested in, in all of those steps in evolution and um, kind of describing fossils that might allow us to, to understand those steps a little bit better. Yeah, and when you're looking at that uh, transition from terrestrial to like fully aquatic whales obviously you can see that in the fossils and evidence that there's that transition what work goes into putting together these evolutionary uh lineages to understand where an animal came from yeah so um i guess there's a few different components of it so the first step is finding the fossils and kind of describing what they look like but then you've got to do analyses to to place them within a phylogeny to figure out what they're closely related to. Um, you've got to do work to age the rocks that you found them in. So um, we do a lot of um, collaborations with, um, with people to, to figure out how old the fossils are. Um, and then kind of following on from that, I'm also interested in describing what these animals were doing in the environment. So um, how their different um, anatomical features might have helped them to swim or to feed on different types of prey. And so, yeah, there's all these different steps and um, kind of some of the work happens in the field, some of it happens in a, a lab and other parts of it happen on a computer afterwards. Yeah. And obviously there's lots of different people all around the world working on these things. Do you communicate with them and share your ideas to sort of see if one of you is on the right path or maybe someone else's research would assist you in what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, definitely. So, so sometimes it gets a bit competitive. Sometimes labs race each other and keep information from each other, but that other times it um it works collaboratively. So I'm quite happy to work with in an area where everyone kind of gets along and and shares information. We have lots of um, chats over Zoom. So earlier this week, I had a chat to um to one of my colleagues that's at the Smithsonian over in the US, and yeah, just kind of sharing ideas and and information and trying to figure out what's actually going on. Yeah. Um, looking back at where you've previously done your work, you mentioned the Smithsonian this just before. Um, did you work there in the past or is that just someone you have um, as a connection through your experience in the field? Yeah, um, so I, I have worked over there before. So I, I spent a year there um, 
kind of on a, a fellowship. So scientists sometimes get these research positions that you, you get a year or two years just to study something that you're really interested in. Um, so during my PhD, I, I got the opportunity to go over to the States for a year and work at the Smithsonian on whale evolution. Um, it's kind of yeah a, a really good time in my life. They've got amazing collections. They're extremely well resourced. And there's a whole mm. lot of people over there that are just really cluey and know what they're doing. So I, I learned a huge amount in that year. Yeah. And obviously, uh, there's a lot of... America's a big place. There's a lot of sites there to find these fossils and things. Um, I know there's lots of interesting stories of people digging up buildings in the middle of cities and finding sharks and whales and all sorts of things. Um, did you find that there's uh, lots of different differing creatures over there compared to here? Yeah, definitely. So um, some of the field work um, that we did over in the States was at the, the Calvert Cliffs in Maryland. And it's just an amazing fossil site where you, you spend the day walking along these cliffs by the water and, and fossils are actively eroding out of the, the cliff face. And so as you're walking along, you see kind of half a skull of a whale kind of poking out of these these um, cliffs and you've got to then go through the process of trying to excavate it and, and find out what it is. But yeah, just um, really amazing abundance of fossils. So we, we get um, huge numbers of really small baleen whales there as well as some really weird long-snouted dolphins as well. Yeah. Um, you said you worked a lot with uh, mammals and reptiles, specifically marine mammals. Do you work on all of the fossils you find, so dinosaurs, um, megafauna, all of that sort of thing, or is it just more focused on that area for you at the moment? Um, so I guess I'm, I'm interested in whale evolution is kind of a, a broad topic, but um, a lot of my other work focuses on convergent evolution. So mm -hmm. trying to understand uh, why certain animals evolved to, to have similar traits to one another. And because of that, I end up looking at kind of a wide range of different species as well. So while I was in the States, I wasn't just working at these sites that had fossil whales. I was also uh, traveling over to Nevada to look at um, some sites that had fossil ichthyosaurs as well. Mm -hmm. So these are some some really large aquatic um, reptiles um, that kind of look superficially similar to whales, but um, evolved from a completely different group. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you was about convergent evolution, because it's one of those things that, I've, as I've read more into uh, paleontology and evolution and all of these sort of things. It's one of those things that just really fascinates me um, that these creatures in different timelines, different places around the world can all evolve the same traits, even though they're in completely different environments. Um, what are some ex other examples of this um, that we can see maybe at the moment in our current world? Yeah, so I guess there's there's plenty of textbook examples out there. I mean, things like the wings of birds and bats could be seen as a, a convergent trait. So they've evolved these similar kind of structures to, to fly. Um, but then also things like uh, Tasmanian tigers and wolves kind of have evolved very similar body forms as you know active predators within the environment. So evolution really, um, it can drive very unrelated animals to evolve similar um, solutions to the same problems. So, you know, if, if if there's a pressure out there for an animal to to evolve to feed on a certain um, thing, often they end up doing it in a similar way, and because of that, they end up with very similar shaped skulls or teeth or or limbs or other anatomical features. Mm. 
I know it could be it's possibly more prevalent here in Australia because we've got marsupials where a lot of other places would have canids or felines in their um, apex predator um, ranges. Um, what goes into looking at these animals and understanding where they've come from in the past? Obviously, uh, in Australia, we've got a long history of animals being unique and diverse. Are these ever linked to places outside of Australia or is it one of those things where animals in remote places simply may not need to evolve because they've got no reason to change over time? Yeah, so, so I guess there are examples out there of, of animals that haven't needed to, to change over time. So things like sharks are often, often cited as um, good examples of that. So they do one thing in the environment quite well and there isn't a lot of pressure there for them to be any different. Um, but then you see plenty of other examples of animals that, that change rapidly over time, that, that fill different niches and do different things. And that's one of the reasons why I've been int so interested in aquatic animals because you get these variety of different groups of animals that really rapidly change and do completely different things in the environment. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the animals here in Australia, I think we've just had such a, a long history of isolation of the continent um, that very unique fauna did evolve here. Um, we're not the only place to have marsupials. So South America had marsupials for a long time, but most of them went extinct. So um, yeah, I guess there's a, a long history there to go through, but, um, but yeah, Australia definitely has uh, a really unique fauna. And, and part of that is the fact that we were isolated for so long. Mm. Is that common for islands to have a more unique type of fauna and flora because they're separated for um, longer periods of time? And um, what does that sort of do evolutionary wise that these animals are on their islands? Um, I know um, in the past, the mammoths that were isolated on an island became pygmy mammoths over time because they had to work within the space they had. Is that common on islands that there's a different version of evolution happening? Yeah, I guess any form of isolation kind of causes um, these kind of different trajectories for animals. Um, it couldn't, it's not just water. I mean, sometimes mountain ranges can act as a barrier as well. Um, but when you're geographically isolated, I guess there's no gene flow between populations. And so you can think of that, that population as kind of being on its own path. Um, and on islands, there's different selective pressures there as well. So um, you do get animals that evolve to become dwarfs or evolve to become gigantic on islands, um, just because there's um, different pressures there for them to evolve in different ways. Yeah. On that uh, giganticism, I think uh, Tommy had a question about the megafauna in Australia. Mm -hmm. Tommy, if he's listening. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I'll just jump in. Yeah, so basically, um, it's been really interesting with you. So um, with Australia, so I'm a bit interested in the megafauna and stuff we had in our country. So could you give us an overview of some of these species of megafauna that were actually in Australia? Yeah, so, so during the Ice Ages, kind of when North America had its mammoths and its saber-toothed tigers, Australia had its own really unique um, fauna as well. So we had things like uh, giant wombats, the diprotodon, um, as well as giant short-faced kangaroos, 
mylanid um, turtles. So these are, are huge turtles with horns on their skulls and really robust big shells and even tail clubs at the end of their tails. Um, so yeah, Australia had its own unique kind of giant animals for a very long time. Yeah, cool. Um, and the other thing I was going to ask, so with that, why have they evolved into species? Sorry, can you just repeat that one? Oh, sorry. Why have uh, animals such as the kangaroo and wombat actually gotten smaller in size over time? Yeah, so that's a really hotly debated um, topic. So I guess there's two main ideas out there about why the megafauna went extinct. So some people think that the changes in climate could have caused the extinction of some of these really large animals. Um, but then others think that maybe um, humans arriving in Australia might have wiped them out. So maybe um, humans hunted a lot of these big species to extinction as well. Yep. And do you think that Indigenous people lived alongside megafauna? Is that true or is that hard to sort of establish? Yeah, no, that, that's true. So um, we have good dates on the extinction of some of these megafauna and we also have good dates on, um, or some dates on the arrival of humans in Australia. So we know that uh, some of the megafauna didn't go extinct until around 40,000 years ago. But humans arrived here in Australia about 65,000 years ago. Um, so there's quite a long um, span, at least 20,000 years, where humans and um, the Australian megafauna were living side by side. Yeah, cool. Do you know much about how that relationship uh, worked between those two? Because obviously the Indigenous people, they were super into the land. They were at one with the land and, you know, they didn't want to take more than they needed. So do you know how that sort of relationship worked between them and the megafauna? It, it's really hard for us to say. So, I mean, um, it's kind of hard to think that they wouldn't have uh, engaged in hunting of these um, megafauna species. But at the same time, we don't have any direct evidence of that. So looking through all of the, the fossils that we find of megafauna, we, we haven't found any with cut marks or with um, kind of showing evidence of human hunting. And that's quite different from, from what you see over in um, other countries. So in the US, they've got really good evidence that humans were hunting mammoths, uh, but we just don't have that evidence here in Australia. Yeah, right. That's, that's really interesting. And the other thing I was interested in before you sort of briefly mentioned shark, and I've watched, I've watched a um, couple of seasons of Shark Week, so I'm pretty well rehearsed on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically, from what I've sort of read and seen, sharks are moving further and further into fresh water, and they're actually quickly adapting uh, them to be able to stay in fresh water and sort of maybe look for food in those different environments. Uh, do you know much about that sort of adap adaption? Um, I don't know much about this in particular. I mean, I know there are some species of shark that do um, live in freshwater. So things like bull sharks um, often swim up into to river channels. Um, but as far as how they've changed over, over recent time, I'm I, afraid I just don't know much about that topic. Yeah, no worries, man. Well, that's basically me done for now. <laughs> Handball it back to Connor. Yeah, too easy. Um, good questions, Tommy. I'll... I wouldn't say you're an expert after watching Shark Week three times, though. Mate. <laughs> oh, debatable, mate. Debatable. Good shit. Um, getting getting back to whales. Uh, obviously, you said that's the field that you're most interested in. Put your. I've looked at the research you've done. A lot of it's been around marine mammals. Why do they get so big 
is it because they live in the ocean is it because they've come from mammals on land what uh information can you share on that topic yeah so i guess there's a couple of things there so um one of it is that uh in terms of um, your ability to grow large as an animal, you can often do it far quicker or um, become far larger in the aquatic environment. I mean, you just don't have to fight gravity as much to, to stand up or to do anything like that. So um, being buoyant in water actually really assists with that. But one of the most interesting things is that whales didn't get really, really large up until quite recently. So um, for most of their evolutionary history, they're, they're quite small, maybe up to about six metres long. Um, but then um, in the last couple of million years, we get the kind of explosion of size of whales. We get species like blue whales evolving um, that get up to about 30 metres long. So, um, yeah, it, it's happened quite recently. And um, a lot of the research actually suggests that um, that's due to patterns of ocean circulation. So... Um, a couple of million years ago, you kind of get these um, areas of upwelling in the oceans that mean that the krill becomes far more dense, um, but also distributed further across the oceans. So whales can maintain their large body size by um, getting all the energy from these dense krill patches, but they're also um, able, they evolve large to travel these huge distances. So they they can get the energy to sustain the size, but they can also um, maintain large size that allows them to travel further. So I guess that that change in the circulation of the oceans was one of the, the important drivers of that last kind of peak in body size evolution. Mm. And obviously there's been large creatures in the ocean before, like as you mentioned about the Ichiosaur, um, there was larger marine reptiles that were filling that niche um, back in the day. Is it a need when we look at everything uh, in the fossil record, is there always that large creature in the ocean or is there periods when nothing fills that niche? So most of the time there are large um, creatures in the ocean. So things like Shonosaurus, the giant ichthyosaur, get up to about 12 metres long. And you see kind of animals reaching that kind of 12 metre mark quite repeatedly. So you get, you know, really large pliosaurs, you get really large ichthyosaurs that are, that are up to about that 12 metre mark. Um, and you get whales about that size too. So toothed whales like sperm whales get up to about 12 metres long. But it seems like there might be a constraint in moving past that kind of 12 metre size limit unless you're able to feed on these really dense patches of krill. You just don't get kind of ichthyosaurs that are 30 metres long. Um, and that's partly probably because of the amount of energy that they can get by going out and, and chasing kind of one prey item at a time. Yeah, we spoke about the size of the blue whale. Was there anything that got close to that size um, in the ocean at all or on land? But I'm assuming the bigger animals would have been in the ocean at that time. Um, in terms of vertebrates, no. So they get to that 12 metre mark a lot, but uh, whales are kind of one of the, well, the only group really to push past that limit. Um, so yeah, whales are quite unique in that way. Mm. And you spoke about the krill. What would happen to these animals if the krill disappeared on them? If over time it slowly, uh, their food source went away, could they keep that size if they adapted their diet or is the krill the vital part to that size? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the really important parts of paleontology well, as well. It can tell, you, tell us a lot about 
um, what might happen in the future. So from these studies, we know that whales to maintain this really large size um, really rely on these upwelling events. And we can also tell from, from studies of past climates that climate change can impact the circulation of oceans and the, the um, kind of levels of krill that we see and that animals can't really adapt that quickly. So um, probably the most likely thing is if, if the krill patches do become less dense or um, not in really the same abundance, then uh, we will see the extinction of um, those large whale species. Mm. And I know at a point um, when whaling was a big issue, they got to a point where they were very endangered, almost not here. Um, how quickly did they rebound from that to rebuild the populations up again? Yeah, I mean, it, it really depends on the species. Um, so some of the smaller whale species rebounded um, and are, are doing reasonably well, but other species like um, fin whales and blue whales are just nowhere near their, the abundance that they used to be. Um, so some species are still at about 1% of their you know, total population size, and that's a long time after we stopped whaling. Um, just because they're so large and they um, breed um, kind of on a very um, minimal basis, you know, they, they don't have that many offspring. It, it takes a, a huge amount of time for them to rebuild their populations. Yeah. Do larger mammals take longer to uh, produce young? Um, I know smaller mammals such as rodents can produce quite quickly. Is size directly related to how quickly they can reproduce? Yeah, it is. So larger species, um, there are you know, some other examples of things that, that buck the trend, but in general, larger species take a, a longer time to, to reproduce um, and produce less um, young over their, their lifetime. And so whales are right up at the, the top end of that spectrum. I mean, they're, they're not producing many young and um, they're quite old before they have their first offspring. Hmm. Um, we know that a lot of these marine mammals have quite high intelligences for the creatures that are around us. Um, is there some sort of curiosity with these animals coming? You see dolphins coming up to boats, whales breaching to... Um, see the people out there is that just inquisitive nature or is there a reason they're coming to the people on the boat or on the shore i mean i i think in general it's just that they're inquisitive i mean they see something different in the ocean and they, they want to check it out but i guess being inquisitive inquisitive is a trait of intelligent organisms and and whales and dolphins are some really intelligent organisms mm, definitely obviously so so the analyses that I'm actually running is trying to figure out, um, you know, at what point did they um, evolve large brains and maybe even why did they evolve large brains? So there's a couple of different ideas out there about why whales became intelligent. Um, so some people think it's maybe due to their, their ability to echolocate. So tooth whales like, um, like bottlenose dolphins use echolocation. And so maybe they evolve large brains to process all of that really complex sensory information. Um, but then other people think that maybe it's um, due to their social nature, the fact that they swim in large groups and have to navigate that really complex social environment. Um, so I'm running some analyses looking at uh, when echolocation evolved and when brain size got big and, and trying to see if those two things are related. Mm. 
So you mentioned that they work in their family groups a lot of the time or their pods of the whales moving together. Do they have certain patterns of where they move throughout the year or is it dependent on the food sources and the environment around them? Yeah, so it depends on where food's available, depends on where they go to, to raise young. Sometimes um, species will move into um, kind of areas that are safer for them to, to carve and have offspring. Um, but then other species, of, of especially the tooth whales, kind of stay around the same area for the whole year. So you do get kind of this mixture of some species migrating and others not. Mm. And you spoke about how whales used to be terrestrial. Have, have anyone looked into the reason why they went to the water? Was it for food? Was it for um, safety purposes? Do we understand that fully yet? Or is it just one of those things that you need to theorize about until you can see all the evidence? Oh, I, I think there's still a lot more that we need to find out. I mean, um, we probably need to find more fossils. That's probably one of the most important steps. But also just running analyses and trying to figure out what's going on is going to be important for people to actually um, pull apart why they might have evolved to live in the oceans. Mm -hmm. What we can say is that um, they're not the only group to enter the oceans from terrestrial environments. So ichthyosaurs, the group we were talking about earlier, um, evolved from um, terrestrial animals as well, and as did the um, plesiosaurs and pliosaurs, um, as did seals, kind of from a separate group of animals. So you do get these many different lineages of terrestrial animals that um, enter the water and, and evolve and um, diversify to fill different niches in the aquatic environment. Um, and then often what we see is that after extinction events, there might be a whole heap of vacant niches in the ocean that then animals can, can go in and conquer. So um, with the extinction of things like ichthyosaurs, there were all these kind of this space for animals to live in the oceans, lots of different prey to feed on. And so maybe there were these pressures there to move into those vacant um, areas of, of niche space. Mm. I guess it's the same thing in how creatures came out of the water to become terrestrial. They've gone back in to fill another niche in that way. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the interesting things is that you do see terrestrial animals kind of entering those niches. So um, sharks are, are in the oceans. They're already um, quite capable predators, but for some reason we see terrestrial species coming in and, and taking over where the sharks um, already exist. So it's interesting. I don't think we fully understand it yet, but it's one of those repeated things that we can look back through the fossil record and see that it's happened multiple times. And I think we are getting closer and closer to figuring out um, why animals might um, be pushed into those niche spaces. Mm. And obviously it's not, a, as you said, evolution takes a long time. It's not like a marine mammal is just going to walk onto land in a couple of hundred years. It's going to take a long time for that evolution to take place. And we talked about the whales and dolphins before. Um, Tommy, you had some questions about uh, orca whales, uh, orcas. They're not whales, are they? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I guess when we say whales, I'm kind of talking about cetaceans as a whole mm. group. So that includes the tooth whales, like um, like dolphins as well, um, as well as the the baleen whales. So they, they're the, the really large kind of filter-feeding mm. ones that we see in the oceans. Um, but yeah, species like um, orcas are closely related to, to dolphins and Sperm whales are also part of that toothed whale group. Mm, 
Yeah, it's one of those ones where they're all in the same group, but there's different uh, subspecies and all that sort of thing. Yeah, so, I mean, as paleontologists, we often um, talk about things in kind of very scientific terms. So mm. we have names for each of the different branches of the tree and, and we know which species are a part of those. Um, but yeah, whales, one of those confusing ones where we've some species that we refer to as whales that are on the the toothed branch, and then we've got um, other species we refer to as whales um, on the the baleen whale branch. But um, then we've got dolphins that we don't call whales, but they're kind of mixed up as part of the tooth branch as well. So yeah, it, it gets a little bit confusing. Mm, that makes me feel better for not understanding the uh, <laughs> lineage of whales. <laughs> uh, Tommy, what did you have? Yeah, so sort of um, after watching Blackfish, everyone's sort of seen that documentary and it raises your eyebrows into the world of walkers and how intelligent they are. So I was wondering whether you knew much about how they have developed that intelligence over time, why they have, whether that's for survival or reproduction or other reasons. Yeah, so I, I think... Um... There's a couple of different spurts of brain size evolution in, in whales. So there's one, one kind of period early on that might be related to echolocation, but then um, the specific groups that, that uh, orcas are a part of, so the, the oceanic dolphins, um, also evolve kind of this second um, wave of, of brain size evolution. So they're some of the most intelligent um, cetaceans. And um, yeah, so, so orcas um, are part of that group. And I think um, that, ev that, uh, moment of brain size evolution is probably related to um, sociality. So they they live in these complex social groups. Um, they engage in kind of interacting with um, members of the same species on a day-to-day -day basis in really complex ways. And I think that's probably the, the cause of that period of brain size evolution. Yep. Okay. And with their intelligence as well, I sort of wondered... With their, they've got their own languages and stuff. Like you can hear it through yeah. our ears, but it just sounds like a bit of screeching and weird noises. I was wondering, do you think that we'll ever be able to understand their language or what they're, how they're um, communicating? Or do you think that's sort of pretty hard to do? Yeah, no, I think there's already researchers out there that are, are getting a good handle on uh, understanding what different vocalizations um, mean. Um, sometimes the vocalizations change kind of group to group though. So even within one species, they can be talking in completely different ways in different um, populations, in different um, pods. And so it is kind of a, a complex um, system of information to try and decipher. So do you think in the different pods and different groups around the world, they could potentially have their own specific language in that group or is that... Yeah, maybe you'd think about it something like a dialect. So they're, they're, they're using different words. They're, um, you know, talking with different accents. They're, they're saying things in different ways. But, um, yeah, there, there's kind of differences that we've got to try and get our heads around as well. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, so complex. And the other question would be, what are your thoughts on them being kept in cat captivity? Because obviously that's sort of being stopped now. Sort of it's um, fairly hard to do. But with the with that documentary in particular, it sort of showed how their their fins sloped to one side when they were when they were sort of trapped, and that sort of showed a sort of depression and not you know not being happy. 
you know much about the dorsal fin and what that can show about these um, animals? Yeah, yeah, I, I have heard that before and the, the fact that it is a sign of stress. And look, I think the, the best place to see animals like this is really in nature. Um, I mean, they, their um, lives are really complex. They need to live in these big social groups. and They travel huge distances um, on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I guess um, for them to really be um, happy, they've probably got to be out in the natural world. Yeah, for sure. No, that's beautiful, man. Um, I'll chuck it back to Connor. Thank you. Yeah, so we talked about, obviously, we've talked about the mammals on land and in the sea, how large they can get. Um, obviously, there was animals here before those in the forms of the dinosaurs, and some of those got ginormous as well. Was there a reason that they were able to get so large on land compared to the animals in the ocean? Um. I mean, they've got their own pressures on, on body size evolution. So, um, I mean, some of the sauropods, some of the, the most gigantic of the dinosaurs, um, probably got large to, to reach available um, food resources, but also to defend themselves against predators. So there's all these kind of pressures in the environment to, to evolve different traits or to be a certain way. You know, if all the, the smaller um, sauropods were getting eaten by um, Tyrannosaurus, then there'd be this um, selective pressure for the large ones to survive and reproduce, and and that would cause the evolution of of larger body size in sauropods over time. And so I guess if you think about the, the history of dinosaurs, there's probably that combination there of really strong selective pressures to um, avoid predation, but also to to get enough food resources from tall trees. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting, especially because. As you said, with the ocean, they're filling a niche. Obviously, a blue whale isn't going to have any uh, predators for it because of its size. And obviously, the sauropods were in that same sort of boat with a few predators here and there. But um, when we had uh, Chad on, who's a zookeeper, he, we, we talked about the link between birds and reptiles and how uh, birds are actually dinosaurs in, in their own way because they're theropods. Um, can you tell us a little more about the evolutionary traits that came to the birds that we have now? Yeah, so I guess um, when we talk about birds, they, they are dinosaurs. We know they're part of um, the dinosaur tree. So um, paleontologists and biologists um, use words um, pretty much in reference to the evolutionary tree. So if you think about dinosaurs as, as one branch of that tree, um, birds are just a smaller branch within it. Mm. And so, yeah, we, we know and we've got good evidence that they're, they're part of that lineage. Uh, we've got plenty of great fossils out there that actually um, show traits gradually evolving over time. So things like wings evolve, feathers evolve, um, and then modern birds evolve um, within that group as well. Um, so yeah, I guess there's, there's plenty of good fossils out there that, that show that, that path of evolution. Yeah. And another thing on that topic of birds being dinosaurs, um, I know until a while ago, it wasn't, it's not common knowledge that dinosaurs had feathers. Is this something that's now seen as a true fact that some dinosaurs, if not a fair few of them had, uh, feathers during their development? 
Yeah, it is. So um, it's quite rare for us to find fossils that preserve soft tissues like feathers. Mm. So uh, fossils are quite rare to begin with, but the vast, vast majority of fossils that we find are of bony elements. So uh, we go out, we excavate these fossil sites, and normally what we'll find are, are isolated, quite uh, broken up bits of bone. Um, but in certain environments, you can get these soft tissues um, being preserved. So things like um, really quick burial of the animal, um, anoxic conditions, so there's no bacteria to eat away the soft tissues, and really fine sediments um, kind of give these exceptional circumstances that allow us to, to find these soft tissues. And so in the case of, um, of dinosaurs, it really um, took a long time for us to find fossils that started to answer those questions. Um, but now we're getting a really good handle on it. We're getting, we're finding lots of um, lots of dinosaurs that do show evidence of soft tissues like feathers, um, and they're telling us that, without a doubt, dinosaurs, at least uh, at least within this um, section of the theropod lineage, evolved feathers. Mm. Well, it makes sense that the theropods now that show traits that um, obviously have evolved over time would still have some remnants from the uh, dinosaurs that they came from. Um, mm -hmm. Another question that I know Hanan was interested about was in regards to the finding of, I know in Siberia they found quite a few um, well-preserved specimens of things like mammoths. Um, he wanted to know yeah. if the idea of a Jurassic Park is feasible or if it's just a... a pop culture idea that's in the works? Yeah, that's a good one. So um, I guess the first thing is that, that DNA does degrade over time. So um, the oldest DNA that scientists have managed to extract, I think comes from about um, a horse from about 700,000 years ago. But the vast majority of fossils that we have, things like dinosaurs, um, are from millions and millions of years ago. Mm. So we're not going to find any DNA of um, non-avian non dinosaurs. It's just not going to preserve that long, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So I guess in, in the truest sense, Jurassic Park's impossible. Um, but then if we look at animals that evolved um, more recently, so things like the megafauna, there are some that fit within the, the age that can preserve DNA. So we do have good genetic um, information from mammoths. So they're one of the species that we could probably do something with. Mm. Um, in terms of how that actually plays out, we, we don't have the technology to do it um, at the moment. So even if we, we get a full genome, if we know all of the genetic information about the mammoth, we don't have um, methods to then turn that into a living animal. Mm. And then obviously you'd need the help of the closest living relatives to these animals. So as we talked about with the mammoths, you're going to look at an Asian elephant. And even if, from what I've read into, even if it was somehow possible, it wouldn't be a mammoth. It would just be a very hairy Asian elephant in that way. Yeah, so there's, so there's a couple of different ways that it could be done. So the first would be, um, somehow creating a, a sperm and an egg from a mammoth to then um, implant into a, a Asian elephant. Uh, but then at that point, the, there's going to be kind of this kickback from the immune system of the mm. elephant to, to stop it reproducing the young. 
Um, one other way that you could go about doing this is um, using kind of very modern um, genetic techniques to splice in sections of genetic code. And I guess in that way, it wouldn't be a true mammoth. It would just be a, an Asian elephant genome with some sections spliced in. Yeah. Um, and obviously, it also raises a lot of ethical issues at the same time. Um, do you think it would be more likely that something like the passenger pigeon would be brought back as a species, but something that's more recent and there's still living relatives of that are very similar? Yeah, so I, I think there there is the potential that we could use these techniques in the distant future to, um, I guess, bring these animals back, some of the most recently extinct ones. But then um, I think we've really got to consider um, why we're doing this, kind of, is there the potential to actually have these these extinct animals back in nature? Because most of the time, the extinction of these species has been caused by humans, and the reason that they've gone extinct is still there in the environment. I mean, if we've wiped out the places that they used to live and built cities in their place, um, we've got to think, are we recreating these animals to actually be in the environment and to, to live filling really vital ecosystem functions? Or are we just bringing them back as kind of something to have in a zoo? Mm. And then in, in that case, is it really worth spending the money that we could have on, on conservation of animals that are going extinct right now um, to just have something in a zoo? Mm. Yeah, I'm on the same chain of thought in preserving what we have. And we can look back and see the things that we've destroyed, like your stellar sea cow, things like that. And I think that's a good learning point to point us in the right direction to conserve what animals we have at the moment. And then obviously we want to keep them here as long as we can um, before a natural cause can extinct um, the animals. Because I know um, the rate we're going at is the fastest mass extinction that we've had so far. Is that right? Yeah, that's a really good point. So, I mean, we look back through um, fossil history and we see these extinction events, kind of animals being wiped out by, by various um, kind of big events. But right now we can show that we're actually seeing um, in, like rates of, of extinction that are even higher than that in the modern day. So um, we're really having a profound um, impact on the environment right now and something that I think we've really got to um, consider and, and try and stop. Mm, definitely. Um, we've only got a few more questions. Um, I know Hanan had one about uh, how we use the science of paleontology in other fields, um, but I'll let him get into that. Hey, Matt. Thanks for coming on. And yeah, shame about Jurassic Park not being a, a possibility. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I was just wondering, um, with paleontology, is there any other fields that it assists in? So is there any other, uh, uh, maybe technologies it's helped improve over the years? Or are there any technologies that you found have become really useful? Um, look, so I, I think the, the primary function of paleontology is just to understand more about the history of life on our planet. And I, I think that's that's mainly what we cover. I think there are some implications of that for other fields. So areas like conservation um, do get some insight from paleontology. If we understand why animals evolved, if we understand 
um, how they've changed over time and um, what the diversity is now compared to, to what it has been in the past, then we can really get some, some ideas about, um, about conservation of modern fauna as well. Uh, but yeah, I think they're the, the main areas that paleontology covers. I don't think we're really going to, um, to cure cancer or, or anything like that. Mm. And what about any recent uh, technologies that you found useful in your field or anything within the past uh, 10, 20 years, maybe things that you guys didn't have in the 80s that has really helped with your studies? Oh, yeah, I, I guess um, paleontology is really benefiting from a new age of technology. So um, we still do some of the more traditional techniques. So when we go out into the field to ex excavate fossils, fossils, we're still using hammers and chisels and things like that. But then once the fossils are back into the lab, we can use um, modern techniques like CT scanning, like 3D laser scanning um, to extract information about the shape of the fossils or to see inside them. But then uh, we can also use modern dating techniques to figure out the age of the fossil sites. Um, and then um, kind of analytical techniques. So um, I guess paleontologists do a lot of um, modeling, a lot of um, statistical analysis. And so um, kind of modern um, computing power and things like that are really revolutionizing the area as well. Mm. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Um... Yeah, I kind of already asked my other question about uh, Jurassic Park. I had a one last question. It's a bit of a um, more of a joke question. If uh, we're finding out now that dinosaurs uh, had all these feathers, do you think they would have tasted like chicken? <laughs> uh, good question. Yeah, I, look, I think at least the theropods probably tasted like chicken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty much everything from me. I'll oh. back to Connor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we've got one question to finish up on. It's another one that isn't very scientific, but it's a bit more um, related to the topic than dinosaurs tasting like chicken. Um, if you could see any of the animals that you've looked at in nature right now, what would be your dream animal to see? If we throw science out the window, you can go back in time and see um, any animal swimming in the ocean or living on land, what would you like to see? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I guess um, there's this really um, interesting question out there about when baleen evolved. So we know that the ancestors of baleen whales still had teeth. They mm. were still swimming around in the oceans, catching fish. Um, but then we get this gradual transition where they they lose their teeth and then much further down the track, we, we know that they evolved baleen. Um, but baleen itself doesn't fossilize very easily at all. So um, I guess for me, it would be looking at one of those um, really transitional baleen whales to, to see what they were like and, and when baleen might have kind of evolved and how they might have fed, because I think there's some really... Um, interesting unique and unusual animals mm, definitely um obviously there's lots of creatures we go back to see like me personally the megatherium or the all of the giant ground sloths are one of those things where you look at their relatives today that are tiny and live in trees and you wonder why they were so big and roaming the uh, plains but 
that's all we've got uh, today for you, Matt. Thank you for coming on. Um, it was a real pleasure getting an insight into what you do and learning so much about um, paleontology. Well, thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to The Blokes in Your Ear. You can check us out on Facebook and our page, The Blokes in Your Ear. Also, check out our Instagram and Twitter using the tag at Blokes in Your Ear. Thanks again for listening and we'll be back with another podcast soon.